holy, holy is the Lord. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to be continuing our study of this marvelous book, and we left off last time with the great invitation in chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. And so we're going to be this morning in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 21 through 31. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 21 through 31. Now, when you get to Isaiah 1, I want you to actually, we're going to, just to pick up the context from last week, I want to begin again in verse 18 and just remind ourselves of the incredible promise that is given there. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I just want to begin where we left off last time by pausing to ponder how magnificent it is that the Lord says in verse 18 that though your sins are as scarlet... And that's a reference back to verse 15 where it says your hands are covered with blood. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. This is a description of full and complete forgiveness. And that is good news. That's gospel. And the book of Isaiah is going to reveal the gospel of Jesus Christ to us prophetically. Over 700 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah prophesied of his virgin birth that Messiah would be God incarnate, that he would die as a substitute for sins, that he would be pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And he prophesied that the Messiah will rule and reign forever. So Isaiah is a gospel book. It's a book of truly good news. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Well, last time we finished what's called the first discourse in chapter 1, which is in verses 2 through 20. And so this morning we're going to be studying the second discourse in chapter 1, which is verses 21 through 31. And if you weren't here for it, I want to just briefly remind you of why it is clear that chapter 1 is divided into two different sections or two different discourses or two different parts, however you want to call it. In the introductory words of verse 1, if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, Isaiah says that his prophecies were directed towards Judah and Jerusalem, right? Verse 1 says, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, that phrase, Judah and Jerusalem, is not only an indication of who his original audience was, it's an outline of chapter 1, indicating that there will be two discourses or two different parts. The first discourse is directed towards Judah as a whole, and the second is directed specifically towards the capital city of Jerusalem. Now that first discourse, the one directed towards Judah, had a clear beginning and a clear end. The first discourse began in verse 2 
with the words, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. And that first section ends in verse 20 with the phrase, truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So hear, O heavens, for the Lord speaks, and now the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so that phrase at the end of verse 20 marks the end of the first discourse, and therefore verse 21 is the beginning of the second so we're coming now to the second discourse in chapter 1, verses 21 through 31. And this is the Lord's message to the city of Jerusalem, which he delivered through the prophet Isaiah. Let's read this message together. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21. How the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was full of justice. Righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel declares... Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and will remove all your alloy. Then I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness. A faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice, and her repentant ones with righteousness. But transgressors and sinners will be crushed together, and those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired, and you will be embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen. I'm going to pause briefly here at verse 29, just to explain what he's talking about with oaks and gardens. These are references to pagan ritual worship, which was associated with sacred oaks and fertility gardens, and all sorts of demonic rituals and immorality would take place in these locations. And he's saying you'll be ashamed and embarrassed by what you did in these pagan rituals. And then in verse 30, he's going to say, and it's all going to wither away. He says, for you will be like an oak whose leaf fades away, or as a garden that has no water. Verse 31, the strong man will become tinder, his work also a spark. Thus they shall both burn together, and there will be none to quench. This is the word of the Lord to the city of Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah. And as we begin, I want you to notice that the second discourse is itself divided into two sections. Remember, the first discourse had three sections. Now the second discourse has two subsections. And the first subsection begins in verse 21 and ends in verse 26 with the phrase, the faithful city. Look at verse 21. How the faithful city has become a harlot. And verse 26. 
after that you will be called the city of righteousness a faithful city so that phrase faithful city begins and ends the first subsection here of this passage and if you weren't here several weeks ago when I went over the general structure of chapter 1, I want to remind you of what I shared back then, which is that in this section, verses 21 through 26, there is what uh, the Old Testament scholar Alec Moyer points out is a chiastic structure. And that structure actually helps us to understand what the main point is. This is a, a literary device that would be used by Old Testament writers to point out the main idea. And the main idea is the central thought of this chiastic structure. So if you notice, I've put it in front of you. Notice how verse 21 and verse 20, the end of verse 26 correspond together. Those are the ones I've marked in blue. The collapse of the faithful city in verse 21 is then contrasted with the restoration of the faithful city in verse 26. Then look at the reds. Justice replaced by murder in verse 21, and then justice restored in true judges, verse 26. And then look at the greens. Values were turned to dross, verse 22, and then that dross is purged in verse 25. And that leads us then to the central thought, which is in verses 23 and 24, marked there in yellow, in which the corrupt rulers of Jerusalem are contrasted with God, who is the divine sovereign. And that central thought in verses 23 and 24, that central contrast between the corrupt rulers and the righteous ruler, the ruler of all rulers, is the central thought in this section. God is asserting his authority over the rulers of Jerusalem. He is saying that he is the Lord of lords, that he is the king over kings, that he is the ruler over rulers and that these earthly rulers are accountable to him and they will be judged by him. They may be earthly rulers who have human subjects who are accountable to them, but they themselves are subjects. They are subjects to the higher king. He is the king of kings. Notice what he says about himself in verse 24. Therefore, the Lord, God of hosts, the mighty one, declares. This phrase, God of hosts, is a reference to the heavenly armies, to those angelic hosts that Jesus was referring to when he stood before Pilate and he was explaining, look, no one takes my life from me. I'm willingly laying it down. He said, because at this very moment, the legions of heaven, the angelic army, stand ready for my command. And if I give them the order, they will come. But I'm not giving that order. I am instead laying down my life to save sinners from sin. God here is asserting that he is the God of hosts. He is the commander of the heavenly armies. And he is the mighty one of Israel. He is asserting his dominion, his absolute authority over these earthly rulers. They answer to him. So that is the main point of that first subsection. The absolute sovereignty of God over all human authorities. The second subsection then begins in verse 27 and goes to the end of the chapter in verse 31. And in the second subsection, there is 
a contrast which is really driven home, and it is the contrast between the redemption of the repentant and the judgment of the unrepentant. Look at verses 27 through 28. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness, but transgressors and sinners will be crushed together, and those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. This is a remarkable contrast, redemption of the repentant and judgment of the unrepentant. Now, this passage has a warning that is applicable to the people in the time of Isaiah, but it also, as we're going to see, has an eschatological dimension, an end times dimension. A lot of the Old Testament prophets, the Lord is showing them the future, and it's like a man standing on a mountain and seeing a near mountain range, and then seeing another range of mountains behind, and in his vision, they are seen almost as, as one sitting behind the other, and the, they are fulfilled in the near term and in the far term. Scholars call this the near fulfillment in the time of the prophet, and then the far fulfillment in the end times and the messianic age so Isaiah is giving a warning that applies to them right then but also looks forward to a great restoration which is coming at the end of time but what I want you to notice just for now we'll get to that in a little bit is I just want you to notice the main point of that second subsection and it is a very simple one sinners need to repent while they still can that's the main point Sinners need to repent before judgment falls upon them. So the two points being made in the second discourse are simple, clear, and eminently practical for us. Number one, God is sovereign over all. God is sovereign over all. There is no human authority. There is no authority in heaven and on earth higher than his, equal to his. He has dominion. Therefore, all earthly authorities are accountable to him and they must submit to him there is no independence from God God is sovereign over all secondly sinners must repent before judgment falls and you don't know and I don't know when judgment will fall so the New Testament says today is the day of salvation while you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Repent and believe the good news that though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow if you'll just come to Christ in repentant faith. Well, I want you to keep those two main points in mind, but I, now I want to turn your attention to the primary audience of this message, which is the city of Jerusalem. Verse 1 the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. This is a message to real people in a real city at a real time and place. And I want to talk about Jerusalem. Verse 27 says, Zion will be redeemed with justice. This is an entire portion or passage of scripture devoted to a city, a particular city, and you can search the pages of scripture, you'll find nothing written about Kalamazoo, nothing written about New York or any of the other 
large cities of the world, what you'll find is a lot written about this one city, the city of Jerusalem. And I've entitled this message, The Holy City Was, Is Not, But Will Be. And I've entitled it that way because that's our outline. Was, is not, but will be. According to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21, Jerusalem was a holy city. It begins in verse 21 by saying, how the faithful city. Jerusalem was a holy city. But sadly, according to verses 21 through 23, Jerusalem is no longer a holy city. But joyously, according to verse 26 and following, Jerusalem will once again be a holy city in the future. So the holy city was, is not, and will be. Jerusalem, the holiness of Jerusalem was, is not, but will be. So let's dive into that outline beginning in verse 21. Jerusalem was a holy city. Look at verse 21. How the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was full of justice. Righteousness once lodged in her, but now murders. Jerusalem was a holy city. In verse 21, God uses several past tenses to describe what Jerusalem used to be. So verse 21 is pointing back in time. It's pointing back to God's sovereign choice of Jerusalem to be the capital of the Messianic kingdom, to be his capital, his dwelling place. It's pointing us to the fact that God chose for his special presence, the Shekinah glory, to dwell in Jerusalem. And it's pointing us back to all the marvelous events that occurred in Jerusalem. And so I want to just kind of take you back a little bit before the time of Isaiah and show you. We're going to look at the history of Jerusalem, the present of Jerusalem, and the future of Jerusalem. So I want to begin with the first mention of Jerusalem in Scripture, which is in Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. This is in the time of Abraham. And Abraham's nephew Lot had been captured and Abraham goes and rescues him, and there's this great victory that God miraculously gives to Abraham to rescue Lot. And in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, after this battle, Abraham meets someone very important. Genesis 14, 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, that's Jerusalem, the term Jerusalem comes from the Jebusites who lived there for a long time, and then this term Salem. Melchizedek, king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. Now, I hope you can already see that there is some prophetic foreshadowing coming. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. This is already a foreshadowing of the Last Supper. Now he was a priest of God most high. He blessed him, that is Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then he, that is Abraham, 
gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all. And so Abraham gives Melchizedek a tithe. So I want you to notice here in Genesis 14 that Melchizedek was not just a king, he was also the priest of God Most High. This is really significant because throughout the Old Testament, the kingship and the priesthood is divided. But here you have this guy who is king of Jerusalem and he is priest of God Most High. He is the priest king or the priestly king. In verse 20 says that Abraham gives a tenth to Melchizedek. What is the significance of this? I want to take you to Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Of all the psalms, Psalm 110 is quoted the most often in the New Testament. And listen to what Psalm 110 says. Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord, so this is Yahweh speaking to Adam Nye. Right? This is a reference to the Trinity, to the Father and then to the Son. Yahweh says to my Lord, so David, who is David's Adonai? Well, that's the Messiah. Yahweh says to my Adonai, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So here you have this combination of a reference to Zion, that is Jerusalem. Your strong scepter, the Messiah's strong scepter, will be stretched forth from Jerusalem, from Zion. And he will rule from Zion. That's his kingship and Jerusalem as the capital of his kingship. And verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is an exceptionally significant messianic psalm. In fact, it's the one, as I said, cited most frequently in the New Testament. And it clearly says that the Messiah will be both king and priest. And he will be a priest not from the Levitical priesthood, which was established in the time of Moses, but from a more ancient priesthood, one that preceded the time of Moses, the priesthood of Melchizedek from the time of Abraham. He will not be a Levitical priest from the time of Moses. He will be from a more ancient order of priests, the priesthood of Melchizedek from the time, not of Moses, but of Abraham. So he will be a priest according to the Abrahamic covenant, not the Mosaic law. Hebrews is, the book of Hebrews is going to explain this to us. So turn to Hebrews chapter 5. And Hebrews chapters 5 through 7 have a lot to say about this. I encourage you to study it on your own. We're going to read just selections just to get kind of the main idea. But in Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews has been telling the people that we have a great high priest 
who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's chapter 4, verse 14. And because we have this great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, chapter 4, verse 16 says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This priest has passed through the heaven. This priest has a throne, and you can come boldly to his throne. Why is that? Well, look at Hebrews 5, verse 5. Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, also says in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, this ancient Jerusalem priesthood which preceded the time of Moses. Look over to chapter 6, verse 13. When God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as confirmation to end every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. By the way, we, that's what we're saying, isn't it? In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. That's referring to an anchor that extends into the holy of holies and secures us there to the mercy seat of God. Well, what is that anchor that goes within the veil? Verse 20 says, this is where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, this ancient order of priests which preceded the Levitical priesthood. And chapter 7 draws out the implications of that. Chapter 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Why are you not under the Mosaic law? Why? Because a great high priest has come, not according to the Levitical priesthood and therefore the Mosaic law, but according to a priesthood which preceded it, the order of Melchizedek, and therefore you are under a new law, the law of Christ. Look again at what Hebrews 7, 
verse 12 says, for when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. You know, there's a fairly growing movement now where Christians, Gentile Christians, are saying we have to obey the Mosaic law. Oh, dear friends, your high priest is not a Levitical priest. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He is from the tribe of Judah, and he belongs to a different priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek, one which preceded the Levitical priesthood and endures past it. The Levitical priesthood, the book of Hebrews makes clear, has been superseded by Christ, the high priest, who is a priest forever, according not to the Levitical priesthood, but to that of Melchizedek. That is why we are not under the law. But what is kind of this journey through this reference to Melchizedek, the king and high priest of Jerusalem, what is the point? Why have I taken you on this journey? Because I want you to see that in Genesis, in Psalms, and in the New Testament, the Messiah is foretold to be both priest and king, just like Melchizedek was. And just as Jerusalem was the capital of the ancient priest and king, it will again be the capital of the eternal priest and king, the great high priest and king, the one which Melchizedek foreshadowed, which is Jesus, the king of all kings and the high priest over all priests. So even from ancient times, from the time of Abraham, Long before the time of Moses, long before the time of Isaiah, Jerusalem had already been set apart by God as his holy city. That's the first time we see Jerusalem there in Genesis 14. The next time Jerusalem appears in the Bible after Abraham meets Melchizedek in Genesis 14 is then in Genesis chapter 22. Well, what happens in Genesis chapter 22? Remember, God tells Abraham to take Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice. Well, where does this take place? It takes place on Mount Moriah, which is the temple mount in Jerusalem. Isaac, the son of the Messianic promise, was laid on the altar at the site of the future temple. And it was there that Abraham passed the test of his faith in the covenant the book of Hebrews comments on this as well in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, saying, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type that word type means a, something that foreshadows or, or pictures something that is coming. This episode where Isaac is, is going to be offered and then a lamb is sacrificed in place of Isaac and then Abraham receives Isaac back alive, this foreshadows what Jesus is going to do on the cross where he, the Lamb of God, is going to die in the place of sinners and then he's going to be raised from the dead. And the writer of Hebrews says that's what this thing with Isaac was pointing towards. 
What happened on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem foreshadowed what the Messiah is going to do for sinners. The substitution of the lamb for Isaac foreshadowed the substitutionary death of Christ. Isaac returning home alive foreshadowed the resurrection. It specifically says so in Hebrews eleven nineteen. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead from which he also received him back as a type looking forward to the resurrection of Christ. So here in the second time that Jerusalem is mentioned, we see again that it was a holy city because this is the place set apart by God for a special role in his redemptive plan to be the place where the sacrifice for sins is made, where the Lamb of God gives his life for the sin of the world. There's a third really significant reference to Jerusalem, and that occurs in 2 Samuel chapter, chapters 5 through 7. In 2 Samuel 5, David makes Jerusalem the capital of Israel and his home, which is why then Jerusalem is called the city of David. And you go to modern Jerusalem and you can even see some of the remains and remnants of the city of David. Then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David in which he promises David that his kingdom will never end and that his descendant will sit on his throne and rule forever. That is the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. And so this is the prophecy that Jerusalem's going to be the eternal capital of the eternal king. A fourth key episode is when Solomon completes the temple and the temple is dedicated. You don't need to turn there, but listen as I read to you the dedication of the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. I'm going to read just the end of Solomon's prayer of dedication and then read you what happens immediately after that prayer. Second Chronicles chapter 6, beginning in verse 40. Solomon is finishing his prayer. He says, Now, my God, I pray, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. Now, therefore, arise, O Lord God, to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priest, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation and let your godly ones rejoice in what is good. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Remember your loving kindness to your servant David. And 2 Chronicles 7 one says this, Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly he is good. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting. Why was Jerusalem the holy city? Because it was the place where the special presence of God dwelled in the Shekinah glory which filled the temple. And notice that the temple is called three times in this passage, the Lord's house. It's the place of his dwelling. So why was Jerusalem holy? It's because that's where God, who is holy, dwelled in that special way that is referred to as his Shekinah glory. Last passage I want to take you to is in Psalm 2, in which God says, I 
have installed my king on my holy mountain. I have installed my king on my holy mountain. That's an unchangeable fact. God has chosen Jerusalem to be the capital city of Messiah's kingdom. And that means that Jerusalem is rightly called the holy city. Holy means set apart for God. Set apart specifically for him. Devoted, dedicated to him. And truly, Jerusalem has been set apart by God to be the capital city of the messianic kingdom where Christ will rule and reign from the throne of David. By God's sovereign choice, Jerusalem is the holy city. And that is why then what happened in the time of Isaiah and since then is so tragic and draws such a sharp rebuke from God. Look again back at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21. How the faithful city, right, this holy city, has become a harlot. She who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. I want you to notice the three things which verse 21 says used to be true about Jerusalem. It was a faithful city. It was filled with justice and it was friendly to righteousness. It gave hospitality to righteousness. Righteousness dwelled in Jerusalem. It was a faithful city. It was filled with justice. It was friendly to righteousness. The only problem is those things are stated in the past tense. Jerusalem was the faithful city, but has become a harlot. She was full of justice, but now filled with injustice. Righteousness once lodged in her, but now murders. This is the tragic fall. But let's pause for a moment and remember what Jerusalem was. It was faithful, filled, and friendly to righteousness. Faithful to the Lord, filled with justice, friendly to the righteous. But now something terrible had happened. Jerusalem has fallen. Jerusalem was a holy city, but now Jerusalem is not a holy city. Listen to the description of what Jerusalem has become in the time of Isaiah. How the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was full of justice. Righteousness once lodged in her, but now murders. Your silver has become dross. Your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe, chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. They gave sanctuary to murderers and allowed the oppression of the orphans and the widows. It's no longer a holy city. In the divine courtroom, remember, God has called heaven and earth as witnesses. In the divine courtroom, God confronts Jerusalem for their rejection of him, their rejection of his law, and their indecency towards the weak and the helpless. They had been a faithful city, now they're a harlot. They'd been filled with justice, now they're filled with all sorts of injustices. The rulers are taking bribes. They're allowing murderers to have lodging in the city, and those murders are oppressing orphans and widows, and the pleas of the widows go fall on deaf ears. 
Righteousness had lodged there, but now murderers and rebels. Jerusalem was a faithful city, but now has become a harlot. Like a wife unfaithful to her husband, Jerusalem has been unfaithful to God. There was spiritual, legal, and moral decline in Jerusalem, and that decline continued after the time of Isaiah. He calls them to repent here in the time of Isaiah, and they do not. And it continues to decline for another hundred years until we get to the time of of Ezekiel. And in the time of the prophet Ezekiel, about a hundred years after the time of Isaiah, one of the saddest things ever recorded in Scripture occurs in Jerusalem. The Lord shows Ezekiel what's happening inside the temple and inside the temple are idols and inside the temple is wickedness and there's all of these horrible things going on in the the courtyard of the temple and throughout the city and God says look what they have done to my holy city can I continue to dwell there with this wickedness all around and God shows Ezekiel something tragic the Shekinah glory departs the temple but pauses at the threshold of the temple. While God exhorts the people to repent, they do not. And so the Shekinah glory goes to the eastern gate of Jerusalem and pauses there while God exhorts the people to repent, and they do not. And so the Shekinah glory goes to the Mount of Olives while God implores the people to repent, and they do not. And the last thing Ezekiel sees is the Shekinah glory ascending to heaven and vanishing. The glory has departed from Jerusalem. And once God who is holy, once his special presence in the Shekinah glory departs, Jerusalem from that point can no longer be called the holy city. It was the faithful city, but now it is not. By the way, this is why the Roman Catholic Crusades of the Middle Ages were so theologically misguided, much less morally misguided, They thought that somehow by capturing this city, they were going to do God a big favor. But all they did was once again to fill the city with blood and with the plea of the widow and the cry of the orphan. All they did was repeat what Isaiah 121 had already rebuked the city for, which is it had become the dwelling place of murderers. The crusaders became murderers in the streets of Jerusalem, and they dwelled there, those murderers. Is Jerusalem a holy city? The answer right now is no. From the time period between the departure of the Shekinah glory in the days of Ezekiel and the return of the Shekinah glory at the second coming of Christ, In that period, Jerusalem is not the holy city. Jerusalem today, I've been there several times, continues to be characterized by the sad description in Isaiah chapter 1. The Jewish-controlled parts of the city are characterized by a complete rejection of Jesus the Messiah. They have forsaken the Lord. The Muslim-controlled parts of the city reject the deity of Christ and his sacrifice for sin. And most of the Christian-controlled parts of the city are full of idol worship, rank idol worship, 
unbiblical traditions and religious chicanery for profit. Jerusalem, yes, was a holy city, but sadly, it now is not. But here's the good news. It will be. Jerusalem will be a holy city once again. Look at verses 24 through 31. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares. What does he declare? He declares, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and will remove all your alloy. He says, I'm going to purify you. Then I'm going to restore you, he says in verse 26. Then I will restore your judges at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. And after that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. It was a faithful city. It is not a faithful city, but it will be. After that, after the purification, it will be the city of righteousness. It will be once again the faithful city, the city where faith dwells. Zion, verse 27, will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. Praise the Lord. That glorious day is coming. God's sovereign choice that Jerusalem will be the capital city of the Messianic kingdom is irrevocable and it will come to pass. And in this passage, God asserts that he will restore the holiness of Jerusalem. He declares it and he will do it. Well, what will it take to restore Jerusalem? To make it once again the holy city. Verses 24 through 26, there's three things that God is going to do to restore Jerusalem. First of all, in verse 24, God will defeat his enemies. In verse 25, he will purify the city. And in verse 26, he will reestablish righteous leadership. How will he reestablish righteous leadership? Because the king is going to come to his capital and set things right. These are the three steps of restoration for Jerusalem. Judgment, purification, and reestablishment. And God promises to do that. The glorious prophecy in verses 26 through 27 will be fulfilled. He says, after that, right? After judgment, purification, and reestablishment, after that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. Jerusalem was a holy city, is not a holy city, but will be the holy city one day. You know, the prophet Ezekiel, after he saw that tragic vision of the Shekinah glory leaving the temple and pausing at the eastern gate and ascending from heaven from the Mount of Olives, the Lord also revealed to Ezekiel something wondrous, that there's going to come a day in which the Shekinah glory will return. The Shekinah glory will come to the Mount of Olives, into the city via the eastern gate, to the Temple Mount, and the Shekinah glory will once again dwell on Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount. And the New Testament reveals how Jesus is going to fulfill that prophecy given to Ezekiel. He will descend from heaven 
upon the Mount of Olives. He will triumphantly enter through the eastern gate into Jerusalem. He will ascend to the temple mount, and from there he will judge the unrighteous. He will purify the city, and he will reestablish righteous governance, not only of the city, the capital, but of the whole world. From Jerusalem, he will rule and reign in the millennial kingdom for a thousand years, and Jerusalem once again will be the holy city because she will have a holy king. After the thousand years after Satan's final rebellion and the beginning of the eternal state, the heavens and the earth will be recreated and the new Jerusalem will descend from heaven and be the eternal capital of the eternal kingdom. I want to close with Revelation chapter 21. I've kind of walked you through the history of Jerusalem in the past. Where Jerusalem was at in the, from the time of the departure of the Shekinah glory in the days of Ezekiel until the second coming of Christ. But now let's look forward to the eternal state. How does it all end? Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. You see, the city that was faithful but became a harlot will someday be the bride adorned for her husband. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Revelation 21.3 continues, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And then he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Skip down to verse 10. It says, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city. Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone. He goes on to describe this incredible beauty and glory of the city. But then look what it says in verse 22. It says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean. And no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life 
when Jesus ascended to heaven, he had told his disciples, I'm, before he ascended, he said, I'm, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. The place that he is preparing is New Jerusalem. The question I have for you is, do you have a place in that holy city to come? Revelation 21, 27 says, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will enter that city. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life so that you can enter the holy city, New Jerusalem, and dwell in the presence of the Lord and in his glory forever? Lord, I pray that there would be none who harden their hearts none who today hear your voice declaring repent and believe the good news pray none would hear that message and turn away that there would be none as Isaiah describes that are unrepentant but that there would be those who come gloriously joyously rushing to you who promised that though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. You who promised that you are preparing New Jerusalem and a place for us there. You who, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, have provided atonement for us so that we too can be redeemed with justice, saved by grace. Lord, may none pass by your invitation to have a place in the new Jerusalem. And until you come, O oh Lord, may we be faithful to declare your message to those who are still outside that great city. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll please stand.